I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I'm particularly pleased that for this evening's talk because it gives me a chance to say something about the magazine that our speaker works for, National Geographic. Uh, I was a professional photographer. It was my first career way back in the 60s. And uh, I venerated from afar the beautiful photography work and other graphic stuff besides the iconic maps that were coming out of National Geographic. And in the last few years, uh, they've moved that standard ahead. It's still the best in the world. They keep winning Best Magazine Award and, and earning it. They have a readership of, I think, 4 million, something like that currently, and earning it. Uh, they've gone onto iPad and are looking beautiful there. But also in the last few years, they've brought in first-rate writers uh, from around the world. And so the writing now is up to the level of the photography and the coverage, I think, of the National Geographic is right in there with Long Now because this is a, an entity which addresses the entire world and through all time uh, and expresses compelling stories, amazing images, uh, and surprisingly up-to-the-minute news uh, across the board. Um, if you don't subscribe, I recommend it. If you have an iPad, start there. Uh, we get it every month and still look forward to that yellow framed thing coming in the door. Well, there's one aspect of the writers and the photographers. The writers can write from anywhere. The photographers have to go there and they have to work with the locals and they have to get him immersed in the story in a way that brings another level, not just photographically, but in terms of the experience of the photographer. And uh, with this very interesting issue tonight, uh, Jim Richardson has been there and he has stories to tell. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you very much. Stuart, you're exactly right, and I, and I, on, on several points, and, uh, and I appreciate so much hearing what you said, but appreciate being here with you and uh, with all the rest of you folk here tonight. Um, back in the day when you were contemplating being a photographer, um, and I'm glad you didn't because you probably would have had my job by now, um, I, I was at the Topeka Capital Journal with another photographer named Chris Johns, who is now the editor of National Geographic magazine that you just mentioned. And I remember times of us going out for a beer uh, with our dog-eared copy of the Whole Earth Catalog. And there was something fundamental. The fundamental message was that, 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 that everyday folk could do something, do something that would make a difference. And I think that that was one of the great messages of our age and, and it has stuck uh, and, and certainly I know it has in my case and I know that that early influence um, is reflected in what National Geographic does today uh, and what Chris uh, wants it to do. 
Um, you mentioned something else and, uh, and about, about that. And I have been a photographer for National Geographic for 27 years now, I think, something like that. I think uh, I, had, I had hair back when I started. Um, I might even have still had those bell-bottom pants I was wearing uh, when I was a, a young Turk photographer uh, back in, that, in the day. Uh, and, but there is, there is something else about that. Um, my wife and I, we live in a small town out in the Midwest now. We have a gallery. Our pictures are, uh, my pictures are on the wall. And we have a, a very curious thing that happens. And that is that people come in and they go down the wall and they're looking at these pictures from, I don't know, Ethiopia, Egypt, um, uh, Cambodia, Easter Island, all these kinds. Of, they're going down the wall, you know. And you kind of see that they're kind of amazed at all these, all these different locations. And I go over to talk to them and I can hear the question coming. And some, one of the, the couple will ask, so, you take all these pictures? And I say, yes, I do. And then they say, do you actually go? <laughs> I'm not kidding. They do this. Do you actually go to all the places you photograph? And I have to say, yes, that's the way it works. Actually, yes, it is. Still, even in this age, it still works that way. Yes, we actually go. Well, that is the point, and, and, and in doing all of these stories that I have done for National Geographic, I actually have to go, and, and that is one of the, the great pleasures of it, um, because I've done a host of stories on water issues, the Colorado River, the Columbia River, Mississippi River, the Ogallala Aquifer, you might not know that one so well, um, uh, gen genetic engineering of food, food safety, um, uh, soil, that was, you know, uh, all the, uh, Bill Allard, you know, the, the, all these other good photographers in National Geographic, they get to go and do sidewalk cafes of Paris, you know, and I do soil, you know, and, and I, I think there's something wrong apparently with that, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's the lot I've cast for myself because I've always kind of felt that, that there were those kinds of things that, that, like soil, that if I didn't do it, I wasn't sure exactly who was going to do it and I came from a farm so okay that's my that's my lot and I and I get to go to wonderful fascinating places but I also as Stuart mentioned I get to delve deeply into a subject and I want to what I want to do tonight is I want to take you along on this story of our heirlooms our our combined heritage of agricultural heirlooms that have come down to us from 10,000 years of, of human endeavor. And I was toying about earlier today with how to begin. And, and I thought I would go back and, and look at the story proposal that I originally wrote for that. And when I did that, I thought, you know, this is probably a pretty nice, succinct way to get you into the, the whole thing without mumbling around a whole lot. And but it would also give you a sense of how these things start with National Geographic and then how they progress uh, to fruition and eventually end up in the magazine. So this, this is just the first three paragraphs of the proposal I wrote that ended up being this, this story. This is actually the second proposal. The first one was written in 2002 and nothing happened and it was 2008 before we did the story. So you can get some sense of the gestation period, some of these things 
uh, take. One of the reasons that that finally got done was because former editor Bill Allen left and new editor Chris Johns came. And Chris, I knew, had been the state FFA chairman of Oregon when he was in high school. <laughs> so I had, I, had, I, had a, I had a primed audience there. Heritage seeds and breeds. Our world is facing another different extinction, our heritage of domesticated livestock and crops. Without them and their rich biodiversity built up over 10,000 years of domestic breeding, we face great danger in feeding the world's growing population with potentially catastrophic results. Generations of painstaking breeding has produced supreme adaptations which allowed mankind to prosper in wildly differing environments and improbable places. Intensive agriculture and its modern incarnation, industrial agriculture, striving for high yields, inevitably casts aside diversity in favor of maximum uniformity and production. The danger comes when new diseases or climactic disasters threaten our food supply. Then the forgotten diversity becomes mankind's last lifeline, and the possible loss would be more than just economic, but the loss of one of mankind's great legacies. And, and it is. This whole collection of all these thousands of, of breeds of, of livestock and fowl, all these incredible variety of fruits, vegetables, all those things that have come down to us, is one of the great human legacies, on the par with any of our great uh, cultural legacies anywhere in the world. Around the world, scientists and farmers alike are racing to save our domesticated heritage for future generations, depending on them to feed our ballooning world population. This is a story of that shared heritage in peril, of the people working to save it, and of the richness and beauty that has been entrusted to us. So that's the kind of thing that I, we would write to begin a story for National Geographic, and hopefully somebody there thinks it's uh, worth doing. And then I get the assignment, and an, uh, a writer would be assigned, and we would go off uh, out in the field uh, trying to run all this stuff down. So what I'm going to take you on tonight is a journey along with me on that trip, essentially, and to let you go to those places that I actually did go to take the pictures uh, and, and to share with you some of the experiences, but also the kinds of the thinking that had to go into both the production of the story, but also the understanding of the story and what we hoped to convey to our readers. So starting with that, I want to take you up there where you just saw that Svalbard Global Seed Vault with Kerry Fowler out there holding seeds out there in front uh, of, of that place. And to ask the basic question, why are we taking seeds to the or to the Arctic. Why is he standing out there doing this? And as essentially that's the question that I wanted to start off this story with, is what is, what is the purpose of, of doing this? And from there to go on to all the rest of the places. You need to understand that that, that seed vault is a backup seed vault. It's a reserve bank. It's a backup in case of disaster that those seeds which are duplicates of other seeds in other seed vaults around the world, if those seed vaults 
are somehow corrupted, lost, or otherwise uh, destroyed, that there will be a backup copy. It's just like a backup hard drive for all of that, of that information. And those seed vaults around the world where we keep all these things for, for active use are very easily lost, actually. It's quite surprising. In the war in Iraq, one of their seed uh, banks was broken into by a mob who promptly dumped the seeds onto the floor and stole the glass jars. That's all that has to happen. All that has to happen is that your refrigeration unit breaks down. You lose electricity for three days. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just all kinds of things can happen to lose that biodiversity. So we have become very adept with 10,000 years of agriculture in our hip pocket of remaking our world. And we have transformed huge expanses of it to make it into this, this lush, productive place to grow food for all of us 7 billion people who we have now and 9 billion who we will probably have. So we have remade places like St. Mary's Ridge up there in Wisconsin or Yunnan province in China to produce vast amounts of food for billions of people. We, we have developed these technologies over the centuries to do it. The plow, which is now waning, and then especially since World War II with the application of huge amounts of, of petrofuels, been able to take that and automate it, to industrialize it, to spread it uh, over vast new stretches of the earth. This is up in the Palouse of Washington. And so those basic processes that you can still see today in some places, you know, cutting barley by hand like I saw in Ethiopia or winnowing millet in China in the wind have now been industrialized and turned into this great mechanized ballet that brings us all of this food from all over the world. We have taken simple flood irrigation and turned it into a vastly huge enterprise that is very much computerized and automated. Along the way, we have conspired with the genes of foods that were productive for us in a way that has been productive for them. So that if you are a corn gene that is palatable and savory to humans, humans will then spread you across the face of the planet to the detriment of your wild cousins. And that is exactly what has happened. So you see corn that was developed in the Americas, now in the provinces of China. We've taken poisonous plants like manioc and learned how to make it uh, nutritious for humans. We've learned the whole panoply of how to store it against bad times, how to uh, avoid starvation. We've domesticated all kinds of animals, dogs, 12,000 years ago. By the way, as we go through this little presentation tonight, you're going to see up there, you see dogs 12,000 years ago. That's how long we have been partners with these plants and animals. They are very much on the same trajectory as us, and we are very much in a dance, a partnership, a conspiracy between the two of us that is mutually beneficial. Dogs... 12,000 years ago, cattle, 
10,000 years we've been, we've been working with cattle. Uh, yeah, this is a, we haven't quite domesticated them entirely yet. They're still a nasty bunch sometimes. I about got gored by that guy in, uh, who had just sold at the Goro cattle market in Ethiopia. Chickens uh, goes back to about 8,000 years. Horses here seen in the Sandhills, Nebraska, about 6,000 years. We've been in partnership with them. Camels, about 4,000 years. Llamas, about 6,500 years. One of the few animals domesticated in the, uh, in the Americas, which never really had good candidates for uh, animal domestication very much. And we have made for ourselves a cornucopia. As you can see there at Seed Savers Exchange up in Decorah, Iowa, which has thousands and thousands of, of fruits and vegetables available to its members. Any members of uh, Seed Savers Exchange out there? Oh, good for you. All right. All right. You get extra points. Um, a cornucopia of, of, of all, this, all this stuff, you know. And you have to ask the basic question, which when I initially proposed the story, it's what nagged at me because I was proposing this story about all of these heirloom vegetables and, 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 and nice livestock breeds and all this without having the fundamental idea in my mind, why does this matter? Why do we really need all these myriad varieties of, of tomatoes and, and cucumbers and cattle and rabbits and all the rest of this? What is the point of having all of this stuff? And why... Why do we care? Well, first, let me just explain one thing here about where we were and where we are now. So, 10,000 years. For 9,900 of those years, we were building up variety in domesticated crops and livestock. This whole wealth of adaptations about uh, specific solutions to very specific problems. Crops that would grow in this specific place efficiently. Animals that did well in those particular hills. All that kind of stuff was a great, very precise adaptation to place in actual economy, an actual efficiency. There's little data on how much we have lost, but for 9,900 years, we were building that up, and then, and then roughly in 1900, we started throwing it away in vast quantities, throwing it out about as fast as we could. So just to give you some idea, think, take lettuce. In 1903, there were, in the United States, there were 497 varieties of lettuce that gardeners and, and, and farmers could grow. And by 1983 there were 36 left. Sweet corn, there were 307 varieties. 12 left. Peas, 408 varieties. 25 left. Tomatoes, 408 varieties of tomatoes. Think of that. 79 left by 1983. It's a trend. Notice <laughs> we're throwing a lot of stuff away at vast quantity. Cabbages, 544 varieties down to 28. Now, the actual precise numbers of those may be varied, but the overall trend is not changed by that at all. We are throwing away vast quantities of all this 
Here's another way of looking at it. This is the graphic that we did for the magazine. On the top side there, above the line, is 1903. That's the bulk of all of those crops. What have we got there? Beets, cabbage, sweet corn, lettuce, muskmelon. Uh, okay, all right. Below the line, 1983, is what we have left. It gives you a graphic weighted sort of look at how much we have lost. So, 95% gone. That's a huge loss. So, in what cases do you care? Why does this, why does this end up mattering? Well, if you were to go to where some of those grains came from that we depend upon, for instance, Ethiopia, many of the domesticated grains that we depend on every day. You know, I went over to, to uh, the green restaurant and had lunch. I was eating wonderful bread there. All that, many of that, uh, the grains in that bread started their life in somewhere around Ethiopia and Eastern Africa. So, what has happened then is those grains then have been taken all over the world. And we have basically taken prairies and turned them into bread baskets, replacing perennial grains, per, I'm sorry, perennial grasses with another grass, annual grains, like wheat. And you can always think, whenever you hear anybody say the word breadbasket, what they also mean when they are saying that is destroyed prairie. That's, that's, that's essential what you, what you mean, wherever you go. I ate that bread today too. I want that breadbasket, you know. But that's what we've, been, what we've been doing in remaking the surface of the earth. So, okay. So now you've got grains growing. What used to be a polyculture with lots of diversity now have become a monoculture with very little diversity. And if you should get a disease that comes into that, that monoculture is highly, highly susceptible. For instance, this is one, UG99. Remember that name. It is a wheat stem rust that developed in Uganda, hence the name, in 1999. Was first found in Uganda in 1999. Wheat stem rust, that's what it looks like. Well, the effect is that when you take that head of grain and you rub it between your hands, there's, no, there's hardly any grain there. It's about 80% destructive to wheat that it infests. So this stuff then starts spreading and is already spread, already spread to Yemen through the pollen being carried in the wind. And if it gets to India, then you're talking about a country of a billion people losing 80% of its wheat. Well, that's pretty bad stuff, all right? So if that happens, then what do you do about it? Well, here's what you do, is you hope that somebody around the world has kept those 200,000 accessions of wheat that are in seed banks all around the world, and then you go out and you start growing that wheat and infesting it with that UG99 and seeing if any of those 200,000 accessions of wheat in seed banks are resistant. And when you find it and you get it bred into the world's wheat supply, then you start spreading it around the world to all the farmers and they start planting this resistant wheat 
That's 10 to 20 years if you really work at it. It's very dangerous stuff, and this stuff is spreading around the world. I want to just take a moment here to read you something. When I was muddling around with this last night, I found a quote about UG99 and this. This is, just, this, this, this is the arcane world that these guys live in who do this sort of, of, uh, of work. Hebert et al. reported that the accession of wheat cultivar Webster RL6201 maintained at the Serial Research Center in Winnipeg, Canada, has a locus of resistance to TTKSK, that's UG99, temporarily designated SRWeb, whatever that means, that maps near SR9 on chromosome 2BL. Webster is known to carry the recessive gene SR30 on chromosome 5DL, which is also present in accession RL6201. You got that? Okay, are you keeping up here? Conferring resistance to the North American race TPMK, but not to TTKSK. Got that. Uh, interestingly, the accession of Webster maintained at the... Get this. The accession of Webster maintained at the Serial Disease Laboratory in St. Paul, Minnesota, is not resistant to TTKSK, suggesting that at least these two accessions are genetically different. So they thought they had one of those 200 thousand accessions of wheat in these seed banks and they're actually different so now they got 200,001 accessions of wheat some you know so they're figuring this out as they as they go along so does this matter yeah it matters a lot if you go to the famine memorial in dublin and you think back to that story of 1846-47 where the irish population had ballooned because potatoes had been brought from peru and for a century all this population was, was getting a great deal more food, and the population had grown. And then in 1846, a potato blight came in because there were only two varieties of potatoes being grown in Ireland. And within a year and a half, a million Irish people were dead. Yeah, this, that stuff matters because they didn't have the diversity of all those potatoes, you know, to actually be able to have that potato crop resistant to this one blight. These things happen in our world, and UG9, UG99 is one of those things that can happen. So uh, once again, how much have we lost? 75% of agricultural genetic diversity since 1900. In India, 30 to 50 rice varieties survive from 30,000. That's a stunning number, isn't it? 10,000 U.S. apple varieties were lost. In 1900, there were roughly 10, maybe 11,000 apple varieties in the United States, and now there are about 900. You know, I, I, I had a nice, uh, a nice dessert with a Pippin apple over there today, and just think about how many apple varieties are now gone. 50% of Europe's livestock breeds lost since 1900. All of those were some specific adaptation. So... So how did we create this diversity? Where did all this stuff come from? Well, as it turns out, the invention of agriculture was not exactly a, a direct invention. You don't have to do very much. You just have to take plants and plant their seeds, and you, by picking those particular seeds, will automatically do a lot of the work of the invention, quote, of agriculture. It happened over maybe a thousand years, two thousand years. It happened gradually in a number of, a number of places. But one of the places that it happened was corn. Corn originally was, was, came from Teocente, and that, which looks like this. 
and a later mutant version, uh, halfway sort of towards corn, starts to look like this. And a century or a millennia or so later, you got corn that looks like this. And then for the next uh, 7,000 years, we breed corn over and over, and we end up with this incredible variety of stuff. Just amazing variety from all over the world, including you end up with this. You end up with a corn that has an individual husk for each kernel, <laughs> for crying out loud. So think about the amount of variety that is in all of these, all of these things that we've gotten. How do we save it? That's the rest of the presentation here tonight. How do we, what do we do to, to do that? Well, you take all those corn. Uh, that's where I photograph those, up there at the North Central Plant Introduction Station in Ames, Iowa. And you go in there, and you can walk down the halls, and there are tens of thousands of jars full of corn seeds from around the world. And you just store them away. So a seed bank, this is what a seed bank looks like. You notice the, the film from inside this Svalbard seed bank? You know, it looked like a warehouse, didn't it? Uh, with warehouse with a refrigerator in it. That's kind of what, what it was, you know. And that's pretty much all it is. And, and they're just boxes up on the shelves of seeds from all over the world. About 500,000 of them there. Or you have, it's always some sort of cold storage to keep them vital as long as possible. This is from seed savers up in... Uh, Decorah, Iowa. This is out at the uh, National Center for Genetic Resources uh, Preservation in Fort Collins, where they are doing some cryogenic storage. There's cryogenic storage all over the world. Or it may look just something as simple as that. Uh, a farmer cooperative seed bank in Ethiopia is basically it's jars of seeds on the shelf. But having those when you need them is key to all of that. But you can't, the seeds won't stay viable forever. So you have to grow them out every, every once in a while. Varies with the plants. Some of them are every seven or eight years. Some of them 10 to 20 years. Some of them somewhat longer. But you're going to have to grow them out and replenish those seeds with new seeds. Even up in Svalbard, there's a limit. You can't just stick them in there and go back 500 years later. You're going to have to keep recycling those seeds into there. So you're going to have to grow them out, see if they're, uh, they will still sprout, essentially. Or you may have to do this. This is what they do up there in, uh, in Ames with sunflowers. You can't have bees coming from this sunflower over here over to this sunflower and pollinating it. So you grow all your sunflowers in a cage, hundreds of cages all over and therefore you have to have a beekeeper and he goes around he takes bees to each one of those cages to make sure that 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 sunflower isn't getting pollinated by its neighbor apples are a little different you can't do that you can't just keep the seeds apple apples have to be grafted so the basically the only way you keep apples is you keep the orchard and you keep growing uh, grafting off of those all those strange apples these are not cherries these are apples in an orchard up there in Decorah with about 700 varieties of the 900 left in the United States. And then there's these curious stories about how things become preserved. Diane Wheely at Seed Savers grew at, at Seed Savers some of her Grandpa Ott's uh, morning glories. And then Seed Savers started making them available to their, to their members. Grandpa Ott came from Europe 
brought the seeds with him from Europe. They grow them out in, in uh, Decor, Iowa. Then they start making them available. When she goes back home, she finds people there growing Grandpa Ott's morning glories because they got them from their seed bank in Decorah, Iowa, back in Europe. So the, the, the whole thing is, is rife with these very particular kinds of stories and very dependent upon individual people continuing to grow them out. That is, that is highly critical, is that they stay in the culture. Somehow they have to be, be useful. People within the business say, you know, like with, with livestock, you have to eat them to save them. You know, if you don't, if, you, if these breeds have no use to anyone, then they will not be saved. So I was fascinated when I found out that they had their tomato day came in, coming up at Seed Savers because all of a sudden they were going to have like 47 varieties of tomatoes laid out and they were going to have all these people going through. Now this is photographer heaven when you're doing a story like this because somebody's actually going to be doing something and here were all these people going through there. <laughs> Tasting 47 varieties. I, I actually, I hoop and holler in the office. My wife is used to this. I'm over there doing research on trying to figure out how to photograph a story like this, you see. And I'll get off the phone having learned that they were going to have a tomato day, you know. Man, I'm, I'm thrilled. This is big time stuff, folks, you know. Love it. Yeah, so here, you know, there's this. There's just these little kind of everyday life things are going to happen in front of me, you know. And it's going to tell this story of this tomato. That's what I get juiced on. Or that they're going to have this, you know. This is, this is growing potatoes. I, say, I hope I'm right on that. T- potatoes and in tissue culture. Potatoes, of course, you don't have seeds. You can't do that. So you're either going to have to do tissue culture or you're going to have to somehow maintain that diversity at the location, hopefully, where they came from. So I want to take you right now to where they came from uh, in, in Peru. And because potatoes are one of those, those great crops that provide vast amounts of food. This is a little map of those centers of diversity, the centers of origin of most of our domesticated crops. Notice, if you will, that the north, there, Europe, North America, Russia, all those bread baskets are pretty weak. They are poor in genes, as they say. The south is rich in genes. That is where the major bit of this traffic has gone on, transferring genes from essentially the south, and that's an overgeneralization, I know, from the south to the north. So this is Peru. This is up in the Andes at 14,000 feet. I'm out with a family harvesting potatoes. Antonia and Mariano uh, took me out there. These are potato fields in the high Andes at 14,000 feet. As global warming continues, these potato fields go further up the hillsides as lower properties uh, become more valuable for other crops, basically invading areas of high mountain prairies uh, up there. But this is essentially it. So in this little field that you see coming up the valley there, they were growing 400 varieties of potatoes. I saw... I saw a field of two acres where they were growing 400 varieties of potatoes in one field, all together, you know, not in rows divided up, all together, you know, and it was just, we didn't do that that way in Kansas, you know, we had wheat over here and we had corn over there, you know, and soybeans over there, no, we didn't mix these things up, totally mixed up, and which is where all this variety comes from, 
Then I went back with them where they were uh, taking them back, back down to their house um, and storing them in piles outside of the house, performing the uh, Papawata ceremony, which is as a little, nice little ceremony for the spirits of the potatoes that got left back in the field. You know, that they, the spirits should come down uh, here, you know, and, and, and be part of the potatoes that, that are here. It's very much part of the culture. And if you can maintain the culture, you can maintain the potatoes because they grow 1,300 varieties of potatoes there. And they depend on 13. I'm going to show you just a, just a few of them. Uh, this, was, this guy was a guardian of the potatoes, a spiritual leader. And basically his, his job in the community was to know the stories of all these potatoes and what their uses were and how they, how they fit in. So uh, you think you've seen potatoes. Well, this is a, there are huge numbers, 1,300 I say, you know. Beautiful, odd, quirky things, and they all have names, and they all have stories. You know, this this guy, this uh, potato got its name for because it looked like a bull's horn, and uh, this potato doesn't die in frost, and it's using it at weddings and fiestas. And this one is for everyday consumption, and this one has the appearance of a uh, of a whip, uh, and that's where it got its name. And this one's used at weddings and festivals as well. And this one has a name came from because it's ashes of the soul. It's color like kind of the ashes that come from burning of a body. I don't know that business myself, but they apparently do that, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the, the paw of the puma, this, it looks like that, you know. So multiply this. I'm going to show you, what, eight or ten of these things? Carry that on to 1,300 varieties, and they all have names, and they all have, all have uses. This is the great one. This one, its name, its name means, yeah, the, 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 the potato that makes the uh, mother-in-law cry. And the, the daughter-in-law cry. Because, you see, it's so hard to peel that the mother-in-law will be looking over, you see. You know, so so they, they all have names and specific uses and places in the culture, and they're all very much part of that. Saving livestock is a different matter. I went to the Royal Welch Show because I wanted to see this, that, 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 that these cattle who we've been around, hanging around with for 10,000 years have become part of the family, really, you know. I mean, these, I like these guys standing there with the cows, and I can't tell who's happier. You know, they're all just there at the fair, and they're having a great time, you know, and they're showing off. Everybody's showing off, you know, and they're just, they just love it, you know. We're out there, our partnership with horses. Out there, here I am at the, on, the, on a windmill up in the Sandhills, Nebraska, and they're coming in from branding, and they've all gathered around for a little moment, and the horses are sharing the water. And you know that the horses feel good, and we feel good, and we feel good in this, this partnership. We have developed as a species in partnership with these animals, and they are very close to us. Goats for 9,000 years, and here's this little... This, this guy out there waiting for breakfast in the morning with his goat in his arms, you know. I grew up on a farm. I remember holding little Jersey calves in my arms, you know. And it was such a wonderful, warm, warm feeling, you know. Chickens for 10,000 years so that a girl out here on a farm in California, you know, can hold that chicken, you know. And that's going to be with her the rest of her life. That those kind of moments of when she did that, you know. This woman with her duck. You know, she didn't really want to stop for a photograph, but, but I got her to, and I'm so glad I did, you know. You know she just looks wonderful with her duck, you know. I just... Or this girl with a rabbit. Rabbit's only 700 years. 
we haven't had him in long that. But up there in South Dakota. And there she was. She was just lost in this, this moment of a f- summer afternoon with her rabbits, you know. And there was something very touching to me about, about that. There are all kinds of, uh, of species. For instance, uh, photographers. We've only been domesticated for about 150 years. And we're not fully domesticated yet. So, you know, don't let us into the living room. Okay, yeah. These were the folks I was looking for. These are the folks who have made this happen. So, guys like these, these buyers at the Goro cattle market in Ethiopia are exactly the same guys as these guys at the Royal Welsh Show in Wales. They have, for 10,000 years, been, been looking at all these details of these animals. The curve of the back of the horse, the width of the hooves of the cattle, the, the, the amount of milk they can produce on a certain available forage. And when we lose those breeds, we also lose those generations and generations of knowledge that comes from these people who have passed it on and on and on. So these guys are passing it on to those kids, and they are absorbing it almost organically as part of our human heritage, and it's the way that the mechanism happens. So Yes, you have all these cattle, and they are bred for very specific places. Like these, these Welsh black cattle were being moved back into Snowdonia National Park up there in Wales because they could keep certain kinds of invasive plants at bay in ways that couldn't be done otherwise. But they also have this nice trait. They're very defensive, you know. They're nice enough as long as you don't get around their calves. Well, that's what you want in a cow that's out on the hills of Snowdonia. You want somebody who's going who's gonna to come after you if you go after the calf. You want, to, you want that. In, in the third world, people don't get to maximize for one variable. They don't get, as we have done, say, in dairy cattle, to use only one breed because it produces maximum milk. They have to have cattle that will produce meat, labor, milk, and, 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 and probably warmth in the winter. You know, I mean, there are all these things that have to, have to come together in order to make a balanced animal that will be economic and productive. They have to be multipurpose. And that's a much different, more difficult thing to do than the simple, simple, sophisticated uh, industrial agriculture kind of thing that we do uh, in the uh, developed world. And so that knowledge, those guys have been watching, those, those women have been watching all those generations, comes very much into play about exactly what kind of animal do we want. This is an interesting recent example. The Shekov are turned out to be uh, resistant to the diseases carried by the tsetse fly. There were only 24 of them when they discovered this, and now they have started a breeding program and seeing if they can transfer that to other cattle. That's a very valuable thing to have in those areas. So all those cattle, all those cattle have their stories to tell. They are all valuable in various places. They are all specifically adapted to very precise worlds. And this is what's been happening there. Sheep. There were 
1,659 total breeds, and 181 of those are now extinct. And those sheep wonderfully adapted to all these particular places. I went to Wales, and I went to, to, to different places where they were raising sheep. I went there to see uh, Lynn Williams and his hill radners because in Wales, you, you know, hilly Wales, so you have sheep that are bred for the high areas of the hills, the mid area of the hills, the low areas of the hills. And, and they're all very, very proud of them, of course. So this is Lynn and his hill radners. This is, uh, this is Hugh Evans and his Lanwenig sheep. The, that farm is the number one flock in the flock book, means that they were developed right there at uh, that you know we called uh, my friend uh, Jim Turner and I who was my assistant on this we called Hugh uh, Hugh the particular because um, I'm over there taking pictures of him and he's, he's getting this sheep all lined up you see for this photograph and he's and he's looking at the sheep and I go click 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 and he turns to me and he says there's no use photographing them if they're not standing right you know and and he just you know oh sorry you know and then I backed off a bit he wants them to be right. It's in his genes. <laughs> he wants them to be precisely the right sheep and never to be seen in a bad light, you know. That's exactly the whole kind of thing. These guys, Cary Hills, there's a, there's a town named Cary, and there are Cary Hills sheep there. These sheep, they, got, they, they, they get to eat the lawn. You know, they, these are the kind of sheep that, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. You know, Lawrence, you know, Downton, okay, yeah, okay. The, the, he'd have these sheep. They're pretty sheep. You know, they get to eat niceness. Okay, these sheep don't. These are North Ronaldsay sheep, and they get to eat seaweed. You know, that's, that's, they live on North Ronaldsay, which is four miles long and two miles wide. It's up in the Orkney Islands. And there's a fence on the island, a stone fence. And the purpose of the fence is to keep the sheep out on the beach and not let them on the pasture. So force them to eat the seaweed. But think about that. These are sheep who can eat salt water laden seaweed and prosper. That's kind of a valuable little thing to have in your on your in your in your quiver. Pigs. Seven hundred and eleven breeds and hundred and forty eight are now extinct. I like this particular pig. I I'm the devious photographer, you know. I, I see the farmer, he's standing here like this, and the pig is kind of going like this, you know. And I thought, that's a nice little ballet between us, isn't it? Yeah, you know. That's, that's the way photographers think, you know. They were, we're a strange bunch. We're a strange species in ourselves. But that particular breed, the Welsh white hogs, were born to be long so that when you had a big litter of pigs, the sow could nurse all those pigs, you know, sort of... You know, in line, <laughs> you know, all right? This is the kind of thing these people look for. I remember standing and listening to a guy talk, and, and, they're, and they're, they're saying, you know, talking about sheep, and you see that sheep, and the guy says, you see that sheep over there? He's got, a, he's got that black mark on his left shoulder. It looks kind of like a heart, and he says, yeah, and he says, I'll bet you I can move it to his rump in four generations. <laughs> No, he said, you can't, you can't. No, take five at least. You Take five at least. You're on, you know. <laughs> These guys do this for sport. This is fun, you know. This is what we lose if we, if we, if we lose not just the breeds, but we lose the people. We lose the, we lose the knowledge. Chickens are fun, of course. There were 963 of them, and we've lo we lost uh, eight, 38 or 48 are extinct. 
yeah, Grantham, Lord Grantham, he'd have these, the silver gray dorking, you know, an oldish British breed, you know, and they have five toes rather than four. Now, who would have thought that? Five toes on a chicken, you know? Uh, these were all taken at Tatton Park, which is a, uh, it's kind of like Downton Abbey. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great old estate farm, and they have uh, a great collection of heirloom uh, chickens there. So, yeah, all these strange Orpingtons, you know, and Hamburg Bantams, and they, and they all have some particular history. They were raised for some particular place for some weird reason. This is a black silky, you know. This is, this is basically a show chicken. You know, there's, there's, there's no purpose in having a chicken uh, like this running around in your barnyard. This, uh, <laughs> this chicken was, uh, he was, well, he was catatonic is what he was when we were photographing him. Mean, he just never got up, you know, sorry, you know. He probably looks wonderful, you know, if he's, uh, if he's right, you know. And, uh, but look at this guy. Look at that, the Derbyshire, Darby, actually, let me get it right, Derbyshire red cap. Look at that comb on this guy. He, he, you know, he, he, you could just tell when he walked around. You know, he's a proud guy. You know, he really likes strutting his, his stuff. This is the glamorous life of a photographer. Back in some back barn, you know, where we can find it, you know. But I was assisted by the chicken whisperers, Jim and the guy there at the farm, you know. And, and, uh, and Jim got really good, you know, you can take a, put your finger right underneath the chicken's chin like this, you know, and, and just raise it up, and the chicken will go, and, they'll, and then you go, and they'll stay there for just a second, you know. This is the kind of stuff we learn to do, you know. There's yet one more thing we need to save. We need to save not just all the domesticated ones. We probably need to save huge amounts of the land races, the wild cousins, all these other plants and animals that they, that they came from because if you can't find, like UG99, if you can't find that resistance in a domesticated variety of wheat, then you're going to go to the wild cousins, which will make it tougher, but you can do it. And if you can't find it there, then you're going to go to the land races, which will be much tougher, but can be done. And if you world population depends on it, you're probably going to try. So um, their goal at Kew has been to save 10% of the world's plant species by 2010. They reached it in 2009 with 24,200 species in their seed bank. They concentrate on non-domesticated varieties, and it is absolutely a world-class uh, resource for wild relatives of plants. This kind of stuff. Plants you never heard of, probably devil's claw. You know devil's claw, but you don't know why. It's used to treat the pain of pregnancy and also as a mousetrap in Madagascar. I mean, we think we know what we want all this stuff for, you know, and then you find people doing all these weird things all over the world. Kapok, Kapok, you know. This was, you know, that's why they called uh, life vests in World War II, Kapoks, you know, because it was filled with this, uh, with this stuff. Uh, African mahogany, um, it's used to make botanical jewelry, you know. Brazil nuts, you know Brazil nuts, all right. Uh, sacred lotus, poison. Castor oil, the bane of, uh, of all kids in the 1940s and 50s. Um, looking glass mangrove, beautiful, beautiful things, really. You know, stunningly, look at this stuff. A seed wrap in blue, probably the only plant around that... that, that that has that. And then this stuff, which I thought was just 
the, the seeds of it were absolutely uh, beautiful, the way this thing pulled apart and these beautiful transparent seeds uh, came out. It's an anti-inflammatory. I mean, all these things are just like the diversity that we know of from the rainforest, except, except people have been growing these around the world for various reasons. So finally, I want to take you just on one last little journey here into Ethiopia to see a crop named teff. I know uh, teff is, is hardly known in the United States. It's grown some. You can probably find it uh, here. It's used to make injera, that, that bread of, of Ethiopia. Anybody had injera? You've, uh, a fair amount? Of, yeah, well, you're, we're in San Francisco. Yeah, and out in Kansas, I could do that. And no, no, nobody knows. Um, and uh, so here we are harvesting teff there. This is a plant that hardly anybody outside Ethiopia knows about, but is vastly important in that one particular place. This is, uh, and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's wonderful because it is highly drought resistant. It grows well. This is, uh, so we went, I followed it through Ethiopia, going to the market where they were selling it. <clears throat> well, Taidis Mohammed, when she was mixing injera in her uh, kitchen. And then Hawa Yesof, when she was out cooking it uh, in this, you know, this little kitchen out back of the house. And then Jamal Muhammad surprised me. He had his own seed bank. He started pulling out these plastic containers and, and ceramic vessels, and he had his own seed bank. He had gone through the starvation and the famine in the 1980s in Ethiopia. He'd lost family members. He knew what, what happened, and it wasn't going to happen to him again. And so just in his back room, he had his own seed bank. He'd learned that lesson that, like the intelligent tinkerer, you keep all the parts. You, you keep those things that can save you in bad times. Those women there, Ansha Saeed and Saeed Shiferan, there at this farmer's seed bank, their farmers, were very, very proud that they had their own seed bank, that they could take care of themselves and, and have some assurance that they would survive. Because these people who real this is what this is really about, these people, this woman walking home in Ethiopia, and she's carrying seven varieties of sorghum on her back. They grow that many. They eat them directly for dinner. That little girl walking beside her is what? Three, four? She's already learning to carry home that sorghum on her back. You know, it is being passed on right now. These people are very directly dependent upon it. And if we think about it, we are too. That's why Carrie Fowler is carrying those seeds into that Svalbard Global Seed Vault. That's why we're saying we need to keep all of those heirlooms for our future, and not just the short term, but the long term. And 10,000 years isn't a bad time to think about. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, George. Let's go have a seat. Yeah. Ah. Uh.
thanks for going on that journey with me. It's, it's always fun to get back out there and, uh, and see all those, those, those folks. Kind of like open up my album. We always envied the National Geographic photographers, and now we know why. I can't, <laughs> can't wait for your next story. What is your next story? What are you Ooh, let's see, next story. Well, I just got done with the King James Bible. That was a, yeah. Uh, Current issue. I'll probably be doing a uh, story on uh, archaeology, Neolithic archaeology in Orkney. Uh, or maybe one on uh, the, the uh, new interpretations of the Bronze Age. So Neolithic archaeology means <clears throat> you'll be looking at them doing their agricultural revolution, or uh, could could be uh, they that was a uh, that was a fascinating. Actually, they're up and down the the west coast of Europe. There are about four centers uh, of of the sort of the metropolises of the Neolithic age, mm -hmm. and Orkney's one of them, and it's just loaded with. Uh, uh, Cairns and monuments and stone circles mm -hmm. and villages from uh, from that era and it's a wonderful place to tell the story of the uh, the Neolithic age. Yeah. Question from George Post: In view of the recent reanimation of a 32,000-year-old plant from permafrost in uh, northern Russia, will we see a revision of the entire concept of heirloom species? <laughs> Bring back the extinct uh, whatever it is, potato. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting one today, mm -hmm. wasn't it? it was yesterday uh, that that, uh, that that came uh, about. Uh, my my interpretation of that was that uh, this was a, a rare, <laughs> a very rare uh, occurrence mm -hmm. that they were able to find that. But um, yeah, um, the you you every once in a while you're going to get a chance to do something like that. Mm -hmm. um, more important to me is, is the large scale of uh, we've got we've got things sitting in jars uh, in seed banks that need to be saved. There's the wonderful story, by the way, uh, of uh, the Vavilov Institute uh, in in uh, in Russia, and Vavilov was mm. perhaps one of the first <coughs> seed savers. Mm -hmm. He he he's the guy who went to Ethiopia, um, and uh, and mapped out many of these, these seeds and had this great seed vault in, um, in Russia. During the Stalinist era, he fell out of favor with the Stalinists because he, uh, he refused to, to go along with their genetic bunk and uh, was he sent was, off. He was vocally anti-Lysenko? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think so, I, as I have the story. And, and so he gets sent off to a, a gulag uh, prison and the, the fascinating story about it is that during World War II, during the siege of uh, uh, Leningrad, mm -hmm. his staff there at the seed bank, a number of them starved to death with bags of seed still sitting on their desk. They refused to eat the seeds because they so believed that they were saving them for the future, that they starved at their desk rather than eat the grain. Were they successful? Were those seeds, seed in fact, saved? That is, the, that is the sad part that I was uh, wanting to get to. I have, the woman that I talked to at Ames, Iowa, said that the sad part is that today, probably half of the seeds in the Vavilov collection are no longer viable. Hmm. And it is simply that whole expensive, difficult business of you've got to keep growing them out. You have to keep <coughs> replacing the seeds and recycling them. 
So you say seven to twenty years. What happens? Is like after the period of time, five only sort goes of down. Down, they, they, they won't spread half, out. and then a quarter, yeah, and then right. yeah, you know, and lower and lower. I mean, you, you, it, it isn't an all-in-once thing that you know mm-hmm. that, that at 21 years it's no good anymore. It, it's just that the via, the viability goes down, and eventually gets to the place that you, they just will not, uh, they will not grow. Well, does cold help? I mean, it cold clearly helps. helps with this particular plant yeah. from 32,000. Cold, cold helps, and that is why they're they're going into uh, that seed bank in the in the Arctic is because. Um, they, they do, they, they, it is naturally cold below mm-hmm. freezing back in that mountain, and they cool it further. But even if the electricity goes off, mm-hmm. that will stay cold for a, for a long time and, and aid in the longevity of those, those plants. However, you have to say that not all seeds need the same temperature and the same conditions for maximum storage. So this is a bit of a compromise, uh, putting them all into one vault at one temperature. So, Question from Forrest, looks like Pound. Uh, what do you think of efforts to breed uh, perennial wheat again by crossing annuals with uh, inedible perennial grass? Your um, neighbor, I guess, yeah. West Jackson. <laughs> Back to West Jackson. You mentioned him in your, in your in, or you went across that in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Um, uh, you're talking about some of the efforts, uh, at least one of the efforts, and that's uh, at the Land Institute uh, in Salina, Kansas, which is about 15 miles from where I live. <laughs> Wes Jackson right. is a MacArthur Fellow, is working on uh, not just wheat, but, but perennial grains, grains that don't have to be replanted every year, uh, basically that you could harvest the prairie. And, and so that you, you're not plowing all the time, you're not... Uh, uh, having all of the erosion associated with that cultivation um, and you get a ideally you would have a polyculture you wouldn't have just mm-hmm. one one plant mm-hmm. uh, so so that you that you have this natural resistance if you have a dry year the the dry hardy things come on if you have a wet year the other ones come on and and you just harvest the whole thing um, it's it's one it's it's one of the technologies that, that has great promise of 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 answering uh, a, a particular problem in agriculture. Now, Wes has been blasting away for about 30 years on those things. <laughs> uh, does he... Wes, Wes, yeah, Wes is and, a character, isn't he? <laughs> do any of his young staffers... Anybody read his books? Anybody read uh, Wes Jackson's books? Yeah, of okay, course, right, yeah. Good, good. The San Francisco. <laughs> He's a great guy. Uh, Wes has been here, and, and uh, Wes... Curmudgeon? Here. Would you say curmudgeon? I would say curmudgeon. <laughs> he comes here, and he says... Uh, California is so beautiful. God, the sky and the weather and the ocean, all that stuff. It's easy to <laughs> find beauty in color. In Kansas, you got to work to find the beauty. <laughs> it's not easy. But, okay, there he is, blasting away for three decades or so. Uh, surely some on of his... On what uh, Yeah, I'm doing his land institute. Right? <laughs> so trying to get the... You know, right roots deeper and deeper and there's these beautiful photographs of perennial plants that have roots that go down to there whereas all these little annual plants are just little surface things well there must be some young staffers at the land institute who are secretly genetically engineering (laughs) (laughs) you mean actually uh uh, you know uh, replacing genes replacing genes and you know gene splicing gene slopping all that stuff to get the thing to happen in a little shorter than 30 years uh I don't think anybody at the Land Institute is, is doing that. Uh, but uh, you, it's certainly tempting to, to short-circuit um, the process. I think Wes would tell you that it isn't necessary. Uh, 
<laughs> Wouldn't he? Yeah. Oh, God, one wants to just, you know, race By the way, uh, by the way, this is a, uh, you, uh, have you ever, you know, uh, the genetic engineering world? I do. We got Drew Endy right down here. He's no, the, not only genetic good, engineering; he's into yeah. synthetic biology, which when is I was, the I had next a fun level. experience. This is the kind of fun stuff that I get to do uh, when I was doing a story on, on genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. um, um, I always wondered, you see, because you know you've you've seen this this illustration about genetic engineering. You take the gene from the, the jellyfish, you know, and you put it over into the corn or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. So, and there's always this arrow. Right? There's the arrow. Here's the jellyfish on the one side of the illustration, and there's a corn on the other side, and there's this arrow, you know. And I always wondered, how does that arrow work? And that's, kind of, that's my, my job in stories like this, is to figure out, how does that arrow work? How do you do that, you know? So I went looking, mm -hmm. and, and, I, uh, and I found out that there's such a thing as a gene gun. Mm -hmm. You know what a gene... Anybody seen a gene gun? Anybody? You've, you know what a gene gun is. Okay, they're very cool. So... And it turns out that there are 38 caliber gene guns and 22 caliber gene guns. I and I'm not that. kidding. That's great. They, they go bang? They do. <laughs> you wear earmuffs. Um, so what happened was there, there was a researcher at Cornell who invented this. Mm -hmm. And he goes into his colleague's office one day and he says, how much energy do you think it would take to take this little titanium pellet? Coat He's nodding his head. I'm on, I'm on the right track coated with genes and shoot it through the cell wall of a plant and have it stop inside the cell and not go out the other side. And the guy said, well, I don't know, but we could figure it out. And so they went and got a Crossman air pistol. And, uh, and I'm not kidding. And this was the first gene gun. Mm -hmm. And they put these little pellets inside the Crossman air pistol and they pump it up two times and they pump it up four times <laughs> and they point it at a potato and blam! <laughs> <laughs> they shoot it, you see? And, and then what you do, of course, in this business is you take and you cut up the potato and you put that in a petri dish with, and you tissue culture, grow it out, mm -hmm. you see? And, and, uh, and this, is, this is the first one. So, and, and you don't know exactly how it's going to happen, where the gene's going to go in, and so there is a bit of uh, diciness here. Um, and, uh, and so when I was doing this story, I wanted to go find a gene gun. And that wasn't easy, you know. But I finally did at Cornell. I found one, and it was a 38 caliber gene gun, and I was able to take a, a take a picture of it, you know. <laughs> and that was, that was a great eureka moment for me in doing that story. <laughs> the Society of the Protection of Cruelty to Potatoes is right, not going to like this story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'll be glad to know that um, that's still done, of course, and it's mm -hmm. it's one common way. It's, to it's, do it's, there are other ways, but yeah, but that's and still done. One has come along is looking very promising is a zinc finger nucleases, where you can basically go in at the level of a single base pair, swap out this base pair and put in the other base pair exactly where it was. You know so where, you, so you know where you're going to do it. Yeah, so yeah, genome editing coming along now. They don't yeah. have to use a gun anymore. And, <laughs> but, you know, progress moves on. The inevitable <laughs> question, and uh, I'll ask it, Ellen Burke asked it, how great a threat is Monsanto to heirlooms? That compresses it quite a lot into a, <laughs> an assumption there. Um, that depends. Uh, I, I, but, I mean, and I did this story on genetically engineered foods, and, and I was, a, I was a, a great skeptic at the time, and I still think there are things to be cautious about. Uh, and, uh, but I would say that um, 
Monsanto is act in, in that regard, in that, in that, as that question is stated there, okay, mm -hmm. Monsanto is a much lesser threat to heirlooms than plain old industrial agriculture where you, the whole dairy industry depends on about two or three breeds of cattle. The whole turkey industry depends on two breeds of t turkeys. Um, you know, yes, there, there is danger of that. Uh, for instance, I went up and I, uh, I photographed old Percy Schmeiser up in Canada who was growing uh, oilseed rape. Um, and, uh, and so I, I looked at that very carefully. There is some danger of that. There is the danger, for instance, of, well, this is Monsanto, but you, you genetically modify salmon as they, as they do, you know, and then the salmon get out and the modified gene takes over from the wild gene and all of a sudden you don't have any wild salmon, salmon uh, left. And that can happen relatively quickly. So there are, there are definitely things to be uh, worried about. In the context of heirlooms, you know, We've already seen the boogeyman, and, and uh, Monsanto in that realm is a minor boogeyman compared to other, other processes. So there's a version of that question Chris Lombardi asked, do you think genetic engineering is helping or hindering future diversity? I was talking with uh, Drew Endy, uh, you know, in this decade or the next, uh, genetic engineering is coming into the garden shed. It's already in the garage. It is, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things you showed with heirlooms is vast and wild uh, rambunctiousness and, and just amazingness. People want to make potatoes look as weird as pure pig, pig <laughs> shit, you know, yeah. as weird as... Uh, so they've been doing that anyway through the long, hard process well, of breeding. Presumably they're going to go totally bananas as soon as they can start doing it gene by gene. Yes, but you have to go get that gene someplace. Um, you, and, and that's and, and you're going to seed gonna, banks. You, Aha. There, there you go. You 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 still need mm -hmm. that that bank of seeds because we're not you know, we're not quite that clever yet to figure out how to uh, to do the the trait we want. We generally still go back mm -hmm. to that seed bank and we and we we get a hold of that uh, that gene with a certain trait and we and we don't invent it ourselves. We 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 find it and in, and insert it and and in that regard actually. The whole business of, of understanding, um, and this is a very complex field too, understanding where all that diversity is and collecting more of it. You see, because like Q, Q is out there still collecting. You know, the, the people are still going out and looking for wild uh, land races and, and wild cousins of, of crops and, and uh, everything. That is actually increasing the amount of diversity we have at our disposal. Not, not the actual amount of diversity, but the amount that we have at our disposal. So in that regard, if, if those genes become valuable and more money goes into the search, mm -hmm. then, then that increases diversity. So I, I, that's a wishy-washy answer, but that's as good as you're going to get. Well, there's a nice, <laughs> one of our previous speakers was Pamela Ronald, who works mm -hmm. with rice at UC Davis, a genetic engineer. And um, she's developed a rice that holds its breath underwater for two weeks, so it's a flood-tolerant <laughs> rice. Where did she get the genes to do that? They got it from a wild-ass variety of, no, it doesn't come from a roundworm <laughs> or a shark or something like that. It comes from another variety, of, but it could, but it comes from another variety of rice that was preserved. Uh -huh. That was right. not particularly tasty. It was right. in a whole different part of India than Bangladesh, where the, for the example, where the floods are. 
Um, but because it was preserved, they were able to get this flood tolerance, and they were never able to breed it into the really tasty rice, but it wasn't hard to, to basically yeah. you know, precision breed it with genetic right. engineering, and now they have this flood tolerant tasty rice, and it's taking off in Bangladesh, and it's a good story. And it's a story that combines genetic engineering and this kind of banking that I think is, that's is right. and, and, part and of the, where we're And that's going. what really almost always happens. Here's a good question from Laura Welcher. Saying that saving the world's heirlooms seems dependent on saving our knowledge about them, their names, stories, uses. You know, they show what's going on with mm -hmm. these land races are, uh, which, by the way, means saving languages and cultures and things which are pretty fragile and are themselves often going mm -hmm. extinct. How do you deal with that? Um, the, the example, the place that I went in Peru uh, is the Potato Park mm -hmm. and uh, Parque de la Papa. I hope I'm saying that close to, to right. Um, and, and basically what has happened there is that there are seven villages that are in this valley that have gone together and, and made a concerted effort to bring back the potatoes. They were down to about 400 varieties of potatoes, but many of their varieties of potatoes had been saved to a seed bank down in Lima. I think that's right. Lima. And now they're being br brought back, back to that, that valley. That is a, is a prime example of, yes, how you have to save the culture uh, as well as the stories and the language. In, because if there's, no, if there's no one who actively uses those potatoes, there's going to be no one who grows them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, a stupid sounding corollary, but it's exactly the, it's exactly the case. And it's why people in... Uh, in the livestock, uh, say the uh, RBS, the Royal Society for Preservation of Breeds (RSPB), um, says uh, you have to eat them to save them. Mm -hmm. You, they have to be actually useful to someone. Uh, and, and in that regard, then you have to do things like um, you have to have butchers who who will uh, who will cut them up for you mm -hmm. because you know large scale. Packing plants are really disassembly plants, and they only want specific breeds. You know, they they want a they want uh, steers that have uh, bones of a certain length, because they're set up to disassemble those factory cows. You know, so if you if you're going to raise these breeds, you not only do you have to say 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 the language and the culture and all that, you have to have people who will. Uh, butcher them, who will market them, who will, um, you know, all those, all those kind of things, yes. So Lisa Bartlett wonders, uh, what can we do to be saving these various things? It sounds like we have to eat <laughs> whatever the cow is, find it and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't hurt, yeah. Actually, it, it, that doesn't hurt, you know. Um, so I, I would say the first mm -hmm. thing is be smart. Um, be smart, uh, you don't actually necessarily have to do anything, but when when some stupid politician wants to cut funding for these seed banks, because why the hell are we saving 200,000 varieties of wheat when we only need one, you know, you can be the person who stands up at that town hall meeting and says, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. If you want to do something actively, go join Seed Savers or um, uh, Native Seed Search or something and grow them out. You know, one of the reasons that Seed Savers has all these these plants is that their members have been growing all these vegetables in their gardens. That is, it is such a it's such a wonderful example of of, of community citizen participation um, in the effort. So, is, are these 
is this seed you mentioned members so there's they're mm -hmm. members of this seed saver organization seed savers, and, yeah and they get the seeds and they grow them and then they right. save and then, the seeds and, and send them back and all that right. stuff and you and, and being a member means that you share your seeds so you you're going out these well grandpa Ott's uh morning glories or 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 whatever and and you're collecting seeds and those go back to uh the uh, seed savers exchange and um, and made available to other members. The catalog is wonderful. I mean, all of course, aren't all seed catalogs wonderful? <laughs> you know, <laughs> really. True. You know, I mean, they, <laughs> it's such a, yeah. an optimistic time of the year, isn't it? Um, <laughs> That's how you get through you the winter yourself, is looking at those colorful you see, seed you, catalogs. You get this catalog burpee, and you yeah. see yourself as a, a new, fresh person who's going to do things. You know, and they, you're going to grow these tomatoes and you're going to be healthy. You know, and and cultured uh, and. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are these wonderful varieties of, of things, and there are there are, and there are a number of these organizations around. And and so, if you're not in the Midwest, they might be heavier on that. There's some in New England. They're in the Southwest. You know, you can you can find them that that have the kinds of things that uh, you want, and 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 it's a cooperative effort. Yeah. So is this one the many and the many the one, or to the many people that are growing these various seeds and swap them among themselves? You can do that too. I mean, there's the, the, that. It works, actually, you know. You do find that, that breeds are kept alive in just exactly uh, that way. In innumerable uh, varieties of vegetables are here because somebody brought the seeds with them when they came over from the old world. So this raises the question of soil. Can you talk about soil? Seed interaction, native soils are also in decline. I'm not sure what that means. If you think of the soil as the womb of the seed, is that an issue here? And you did that, the whole story on soils. Story What's on the soil relation well, of soils yeah. and, and land races? Yeah, and, and that's, that's, another, uh, that's another great realm of, of, uh, you know, the, of, of these issues that are uh, critical but generally seen as boring, you know. And our understanding of what's going on in the soil is... Uh, is Poultry, frankly, um, yep. we don't know what's what's going on. We don't know how it works. If we if we if we think we understand that we need water and we think we understand that we need we need clean air, um, then then go back down to the level of soil and 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 think that all life on Earth depends on this stuff that is only a few inches to maybe, if you're lucky, a few feet thick. I mean, just this top which is actually some sort of, and I believe, some sort of living organism, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of, of living uh, productive being. And, and we, we have to, not only do we have to have it, if we're going to prosper for the long term, and I think you're in that business, mm -hmm. um, we've got to get better at it. You know, and we have, not only do we have to preserve it, we have to figure out, uh, you know, what we have been doing that has been so destructive and stop it and and then and then how uh, to be better partners um, with it and not simply ignore it famously historically many a culture has gone many empires gone down when they oh yeah when they used up their soil you know the the, the tragedy that going on in Syria today uh, is echoed because I've been there uh, there are the dead cities in, uh, in that area around Aleppo, uh, which were a, hundreds of abandoned villages and small towns and cities there. 
Uh, and as in Byzantine times, they were flourishing communities. Uh, and now they are surrounded by uh, karst formation stone, which basically means that there was topsoil there uh, only, what, 1,300 years ago? Something uh -huh. like that? Yeah. Um, and it's all gone. You know, and, and there, there are those, those stories all over the world. The burn of, uh, of Ireland, if you've been to Ireland. Now, that's another one. Question from Owen. Does permaculture and, I guess, polyculture contribute to plant and animal diversity better than monoculture? Do you see things moving in that direction, away from monoculture toward what's called permaculture or polyculture? You saw a lot of that. Almost anything's better than monoculture. <laughs> yeah. But there you are in Kansas. Come on. You going to do polyculture in Kansas? No, we're not very much. In Iowa? <laughs> um, it, but, but. Oh, you can't the, with the, the grasses. The, the question as stated is, is, is implying that, that it's either permaculture or monoculture. Monoculture meaning, yeah, you do wheat from, from, uh, from, uh, from my home to western, uh, to the border of Kansas, you know, and it's all <laughs> the same variety and all that. That's, and, but there, there is vast territory between that extreme and, and permaculture, which is a very particular kind of, um, I'm, not, I'm traipsing on my ignorance here of saying that it's organic necessarily, uh, but uh, aesthetically a, a I'm sure it tries to be, of, yeah, right. Of, of, uh, and then, <laughs> then there's a whole range of, of options uh, in between. And, um, and yes, uh, I mean, but, but basically the most fundamental things is there are stupid ways of doing things and smart ways of doing things. Even if you're doing monoculture, there are smarter ways of doing things. Um, and the, the real profit comes from getting smarter. Here, here. Uh, final question from Bruce. Did you find any new food types just beginning the journey uh, to acceptance and uh, I tell and you, I, I don't know that I can answer that question exactly, but, but one of the interesting <clears throat> things about this is that all, virtually all of those domesticated breeds of, of uh, particularly grains uh, but, and livestock that we depend upon were developed by Neolithic people, Stone Age people. Uh, virtually none of them, there are, there are just virtually no examples of modern agriculture with all its wonders domesticating anything new. And that, that's, that's really quite, quite surprising. Almost everything that we depend upon uh, was done, and you saw the years, 4,000 to 10, 12,000 years ago, and we have domesticated virtually nothing new since. And that's quite a, uh, uh, quite a testament to uh, okay, those, so the let's pick an animal. those people living at that time. What, what animal would you like to domesticate? <laughs> I, mean, I would say magazine editors. Uh, they're... Uh, <laughs> No hope Tough there. One, no. The, the thing about it, animals to, to domesticate. You know they're working on domesticating foxes. That, funnily enough, that just came to my mind. What's what's the idea there? A, a niftier kind of dog? I think they're going to see if we uh, well figure out how to do it. But mm -hmm. but, it, but it is interesting that 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 they, that that the, the people have pet foxes now. They got. I mean, they've basically figured out you know um, the breeding to to take a. A wild fox and make it a domesticate. That probably is one of the new, um, rare examples of a new domesticated breed. Um, I Ma think mountain lions. What do you think? 
Probably not, no, yeah. Why not? A, <laughs> yeah, you know, a little precision breeding, you probably uh, yeah, there take you go. a, a little there bit of a tabby yeah, exactly. cat, put it in the mountain lion, and now you got... I once lived with a cheetah who was friendly in Africa. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Oh, and, yes. Uh, being with a large cat whose purr you can hear from 100 feet away, right. and which you know, roars behind your head when you lay with your head on his <laughs> belly, uh, I think large cats are going to be uh, very attractive. Owls, you if go we ahead. Domesticate you owls, <laughs> and you know, train them to go after the rodents in the garden. Uh, there you go. Yeah, that would be helpful. Uh, and you know, interesting things to do at night with your owls. I, you know, curiously, as a, uh, I'm, I'm a forecaster by trade. I forecast <laughs> that in this decade, to our mixture of delight and horror, we are going to see new domesticated animals. Some of them for food, but mostly for delight. I think. Curiously, if you uh, if you look at cheetahs, you mentioned cheetahs, okay? Mm -hmm. And you have all probably seen this these wonderful pictures of of cheetahs that are up on the hood. You know, somebody's out there, and they're mm -hmm. in this in this Land Rover out there, and there's a cheetah up on the hood, okay? There was one family of cheetahs that was raised. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not kidding there. There was one family of cheetahs that was raised and that particular family of cheetahs is in virtually all those pictures right. <laughs> yeah i, I mean uh, cheetah. yeah so you probably don't want to know all that stuff but there there, there you go um it just in in a, in in more general terms um i think one of the the great lessons is uh is this is this is not something where we necessarily have to reinvent the wheel we have to not throw away the wheel here, here. and uh and uh, there are things that we need to solve new problems this is not necessarily we need to solve a new problem we need we need to keep the answers uh, that we already figured out so what i like and we're going to have a talk shortly from edward o wilson who invented the term biodiversity in a sense you're making the case for agricultural biodiversity mm -hmm. And that sounds like such a damn clear, attractive goal that uh, we all want to help. Thank you. Yeah, you betcha. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.